We're in the, the book of the Judges today. And uh, all these sermons you can listen to online. We recently just got them up in podcast format. So if you go to podcast, search Lynchburg City Church, you can get those plus sermons from the last four years. But this is part six of our study in the book of Judges. Part six begins today in chapter three, verse 12. And if you're joining us for the first time, these are very dark days for the nation. Very, very dark days. Days in which the Israelites are constantly being pulled at, grabbed onto, pulled at by the Canaanites and the nations around them. That's one of the, the major themes of this story, the, the canonization of Israel. There's little Israel living among the Canaanites, and they're just being pulled away from God. And as a result, there really isn't a whole lot of distinction between them and the nations around them. And so there's this perpetual cycle in which the people fall into sin and God raises up a foreign oppressor and it comes and oppresses them and they cry out to help and then God raises up a deliverer or judge and they drive away the foreign threat and then they're good for a while. And then the cycle repeats itself over and over again, each time getting a little bit worse. Chapter 3, verse 12. This is the story of Ehud. It is truly a fantastic story. I, I love this story. I, I ran into this story, I think, back when I was in seminary. Because when you think of the book of the Judges, you think of Samson, you think of Gideon, that's it. If you've never heard of Ehud, you're in for a treat today. A real treat. This is epic. This is Graphic. This is gory. This is beautiful. This has so many different moving pieces in it. I love it. Chapter 3, verse 12, part 6 of our series. And the people of Israel again, notice the word again. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They're not what right looks like. And so he strengthens Eglon, the Moabite king. And for those of you who don't know much about the Moabites, that's okay. They bordered Israel in the southeast. And the Moabites actually historically were somewhat related to the Israelites. Going back to the book of Genesis, the story of Abraham, the story of Lot, his nephew, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not remember the story. He prays, God, I know you're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but if there's maybe a hundred righteous people, could you hold off? God says, of course, yes. If there's a hundred righteous people, I won't do it. Okay, well, what if there's like 80 people? And he whittles the number lower and lower. And he's, of course, he's got his nephew Lot in the back of his mind. He's worried about Lot. So, Lot is rescued. His family's rescued on their way out, leaving the city. Lot's wife turns to a pillar of salt. She looked back, really. She longed back for her old way of life. Fast forward to the Genesis chapter 19, and Lot's daughters were feeling like I imagine a lot of young ladies sometimes feel today, probably worried that they're going to be single for the rest of their life, never going to meet a guy, never going to get to have kids. And so, Lot's daughters come up with probably the worst idea in the history of ever. 
You can read about this in Genesis 19. I'm paraphrasing it. The daughters come up with this great idea to get their dad drunk, then have sex with him so as to impregnate them. At least we'll get to have kids. The oldest daughter gives birth to a baby boy named Moab. And these are the Moabites. And these are the same people that God is now strengthening because of Israel's wickedness. Of course, you know, Ruth, she was a Moabite. And the Israelites just in general had a very low view of the Moabites because of their incestuous ancestral origins. That's a hard phrase to say. Their incestuous ancestral origins. They didn't really have a high opinion of these guys, even though they were kind of related. Lot's Abraham's nephew. But these are the Moabites, and God is now strengthening them. Verse 13, He, Eglon, gathered to himself the Ammonites. Quick note on the Ammonites, because I said Lot had two daughters. The younger daughter, after she slept with her dad, got her pregnant. Her little baby boy, yeah, father of the Ammonites. Okay? Really bad idea. Really bad. And the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So, 18 years, they have been living at the hands of Eglon and the Moabites. And Eglon has taken the city of Palms. This most likely is a reference to Jericho. Remember, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. He's taken the city of Palms. Eglon seems to kind of be oblivious to the curse that Joshua put on Jericho. Like if anyone ever comes back, rebuilds this place back in Joshua chapter 6. He seems to be kind of oblivious, but that is what he set up as his kind of base of operations. Uh, it would have been just outside the Moabite border with Israel, but in Israelite territory. And right away, something that you might not notice, but it would not have escaped the notice by any means of any Israelite, and that's Eglon's name, because Eglon's name has already been caricatured by the narrator, pointed out in such a way that everyone would have thought it was kind of a joke. See, his his name comes from a, a word meaning bull or calf, which also has similar meanings with the word round and rotund. So the author's deliberately pointing this out, and yet it is this Moabite king that God has chosen to strengthen to punish Israel, now going on 18 years because of their treachery. Then the people of Israel cried out, verse 15, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. They cry out. We talked about this because they did the same thing back in the story of Othniel last week. The people cried out. They cry out because this is an uncomfortable situation. When you're in uncomfortable situations, you cry out. Whether you stub your toe, whatever it might be. When you experience discomfort, you don't like it. Well, neither do they. And so they're crying out. But as we said last week, when they're crying out, this by no means should be understood as anything but what it is. They're crying out. Do they want God's help? You bet they want God's help. I don't care who you want. If you're in a tough situation, 
been dealing with for 18 years, you're going to want God's help. But this is not a cry of repentance. This is not a plea for, for forgiveness. It's simply a cry because they want God's divine aid. They, they want God's help. They just don't want Him. They want, they want all the blessings just without the obedience, just without the commitment. And today we, we might call this cheap grace, easy believism. That's what comes to my mind when I think about this. Cheap grace, easy believism. You know what happens. Christmas, Easter, people come, and it's, right, say this prayer, repeat after me, ask Jesus to come into your heart, and then those people leave, and you don't see them again, unless it's Christmas or Easter. Like, nothing changes. We talked about this at small group. I think Wednesday night small group, this came up. The idea of wanting God's forgiveness. See, it, it matters why we want God's forgiveness, because there are a lot of people who want God's forgiveness. There are a lot of people who even want eternal life for reasons that prove that they don't have it. I'm going to say that again in case anyone didn't hear me. There are a lot of people who want forgiveness They even want eternal life for reasons that prove they don't have it. You know that's possible? Of course it's possible. You look at texts like Matthew 7 and Luke 6. Texts that are always constantly in the back of my mind. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, I don't know why you're calling me Lord, dude. I don't know you. A lot of people are going to be surprised one day. They're going to wake up on the other side of eternity and they're going to think that they're totally good with the Lord and they're not and they're going to go to hell forever. And it's going to be totally a shock to them. So yeah, it, it, it matters. They're crying out for help. They want God's help. They don't like being at the hands of the Moabites now for 18 years, but that's all they want. They don't want to repent. They don't really want God's forgiveness. They want like all the blessings from God without any of the commitment or obedience to God. That's them. I say this all day long. Like God's not this ATM machine that you're going to come and take and just make all these withdrawals so that you can then go and buy the idols that you want for your own life. God God doesn't work like that. God won't be used as currency for the purchase of your own idols. Right? You come to God. Why? Because I want God. Because I want Jesus. Because I love Jesus. That's why I come. That's not why they're coming. They're coming because, well, they're hurting. And they don't like hurting. Who likes hurting? They don't like hurting. No more than the next guy. But they don't want to repent. They don't want forgiveness. They want to cry out. They want His help. But nothing more. They want... All the blessings, all the good things from God without any of the obedience or the commitment to Him. And yet, and yet, what does God do? I know what I would do if I was God. I'd be like, you're crying out for help? You've been there 18 years? Yeah, you can sit there for another 18 years. That, that, that's, that would be my mindset. You're not ready to repent? You don't want forgiveness? No, no, that's fine. Sit there for another 18 years. It's a good thing that I'm not God. It's a good thing. Notice what he does. Notice what he does. He raises up for them a deliverer, Ehud. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that. But he's merciful, right? And you can see maybe a little glimpse, a little glimpse of gospel coming through the pages here. Why should he send his son Jesus for us? I mean, 
like a lot of these people. It's not like we want to repent, want His forgiveness. The light has come into the world, but they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It's John 3.19. Here God comes, sends His Son, Jesus, on a rescue mission, living the life we could not live, dying the death we should have died, paying the price we could not afford to pay. And they're like, yeah, no thanks, Jesus, we're good. And He sends them, despite the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Despite the fact that we are haters of God, Romans 1.30. Despite the fact that we are enemies of God, Romans 5.10. Despite the fact that the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the mind of every unbeliever, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And yet, he sends his son anyways. He's totally merciful. He's totally gracious. And here... Yeah, I would have left him there another 18 years, and he doesn't. He hears their cry. They're not even interested in repenting or even his forgiveness, and he raises up a deliverer for them because they're still his people, and he sees that they're hurting, and he's a good father, and he's so gracious here. Don't miss that. You read too quickly over the verses, you miss that. Sometimes people say, well, what do you do when you preach? I just try to read the verse and then talk about it and not read too fast. That's all. He's so good to them. And he raises up this man, Ehud. A left-handed man at that. On his way to bring tribute to King Eglon, the king of the Moabites. And the fact that he's left-handed is going to be an important part in this story. And I think, especially based on text later on in Judges, like chapter 20, verse 16... I don't know it's that he's naturally left-handed as much as that he has gone through special training with other Benjaminites who serve in the military to intentionally train that they can be ambidextrous. I think that's probably more of what's happening uh, based on the language that's being used, based on texts like chapter 20, uh, verse 16 of Judges. So Ehud is a skilled warrior. And of course, training to be ambidextrous is going to give you a great deal advantage when you're in close combat fighting against men that are wielding a sword with their right hand who are taught to fight sword against shield. And so this is Ehud. He's left-handed. Rather, he can use either hand. He's ambidextrous. And then verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So we're talking maybe 18 inches, maybe elbow to fingertips, approximately, okay? And he puts it on his right thigh under his clothes. You can see right now, right, there's a little foreshadowing of what might be taking place here in this story. And this is, of course, going to be advantageous because people will typically, if you're right-handed, you would strap any weapons over here, you have quick access, you know, you bring it across. But if you're left-handed, well, you can, you can pull it like that. So most people, obviously, most people are right-handed. I'm just curious. Any left-handed people in here? A couple. That's interesting. So I just counted three hands. Okay? So he gets the sword, 18 inches long, double-sided, straps it underneath his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Yes, he was. <laughs> this guy, this guy was a monstrosity. This guy was a behemoth. This guy was just 
Some of my favorite words right there. I think they're just, they just roll off the tongue. They're kind of fun to say. You can ask Diana. I use those words a lot. This guy's a big dude, okay? He's a big, big man. And you can see right now, like the author, he's, he's very much deliberately taking some shots at Eglon. They don't like the Moabites, okay? You remember the, the book of Ruth? We went through that series. They don't have a high opinion of these people at all because of their... Uh, their history, their background, their story. And so the narrator's taking some, some big-time shots at the Moabite king. But that's not primarily why he's doing this. He's not primarily pointing these things out, mentioning his name and what it means, the little round or rotund bull or calf. He's not giving such such vivid descriptions simply to mock Eglon. At least, not primarily. He's doing this to challenge the Israelites to reflect upon their own condition. See, far being from the people of God that they claim to be, far being from the church, right? I'm a Christian! Far being from the claim as the people of God, the Israelites are... Not so much at all in their Canaanized state, in which you could probably hardly tell a difference between the Israelites and the pagans that lived around them. Israel finds themselves in a state in which they've been reduced to less than the Moabites who they really don't like at all. Right? Here it is, okay? Here's the narration. Here's Eglon. What a fatso. What a behemoth. What a monstrosity. Everyone's laughing. Kind of like everyone was a few minutes ago. And then he says, and you're less than them. They own you. You're their pet. And I use the word pet because I've got to keep it GPG in here. But there's other words I could have used, right? That they own them. Israel, they're their pet. For 18 years. And so he's pointing out all these things, but not primarily to mock them, to primarily say, check yourself, Israel, because you've been reduced for the last 18 years as less than these jokers here. So yeah, laugh it up. That's how far you've gotten from God. You're a Christian? Some of you would say you're a Christian. And like the Israelites, if someone found out, they'd be like, what? For real? No way! That's a problem. If that is a conversation that happens. If the world can't tell a difference between you and it. That's a problem. And that's the jam that they're in right now. And they have been. And that's why they've been under the thumb. They've been owned by Eglon and the Moabites now for 18 years. It's a true reality check. He's not primarily trying to make fun of them, at least not primarily. He's trying to get Israel to check themselves. So, we continue. Verse 18, And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, they're having to bring this, who knows how much, how often, just to live. He sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols, that's a problem, near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. The reference 
to idols is troubling, not surprising, troubling, because here is some concrete examples of the problems that have already been cited in this story. Problems that go back to chapter 2, verse 2, when God sends the angel of the Lord to come to give the people a final warning. And one of the things he says is, you were supposed to tear down their altars. You were supposed to destroy their idols. And you go to chapter 2, 11 to 13, and, and now they're, they're actually worshiping their idols, their pagan gods. In fact, what this is, is this is probably evidence of this religious syncretism that has worked its way into Israelite culture and society, where Israelite says, no, 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 we're good, we're worshiping God. And simultaneously are worshiping and including in their worship, worship to pagan deities. Okay? This is, this is the concrete examples of the problems throughout the book of the Judges, where really they've got one hand on on God, and yet they've got another hand on the idols that they just stubbornly refuse to let go of. And they think, oh, well, this is going to work out, right? We can have it both ways. No, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it your way. It's not Burger King. It's not going to work out that way at all, right? Because our God, He's a jealous God. He demands total allegiance, total surrender, total commitment. He's not looking for fair-weather disciples. And here is, once again, part of the problem as they've got one hand on the Lord and one hand holding on stubbornly to the idols in their own life. No, you can't have it both ways, Israel. And then, of course, Ehud arranges this private meeting. And Eglon sends out all his attendants. Eglon is uh, dumb, if you read this, I mean, the verses we're about to come up on, like, this is a, I mean, risk assessment, okay? This is, this is, I mean, just imagine, right? You have, so, think about that, right? I mean, it'd be like President Trump saying to, like, a member of ISIS, yeah, c- come on in here, let's just sit, all my Secret Service guys just leave us alone for a while. Like, like, who does that? Like, I think it, it goes to, to show the fact that Eglon's even able to have victory over the Israelites was due, as verse 12 says, because God strengthened Eglon. Apart from that, I don't think this happened. This guy is just, at the very least, highly foolish. And so, he buys into this private message that he thinks Ehud has to offer him. And everyone leaves him. And you're thinking about the sword that Ehud has, right? And uh, verse 20, And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached out with his left hand, took the sword from its right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Not only is Eglon incredibly foolish, but man, I don't want these type of attendants guarding me. I mean, it's one thing, right, if he says, I'm going to talk to him. But how do his attendants let him in with a weapon? Right? And obviously this comes into play, the the foreshadowing the narrator gave to us in mentioning the fact that he's left-handed or ambidextrous and the fact that obviously when he came in, they probably just patted him down, assuming he's right-handed. 
but only patted down his left side. That's, that's probably the assumption here. I mean, we have a serious quality control issue on the part of his detail, his security detail, that this would even happen. And of course, the story unfolds. He runs this 18-inch blade into, into his stomach, and the king is so fat. I mean, he's so fat that like the rolls of fat just roll over beyond the blade, even the handle. That's how fat he is. I mean, okay, this is an 18-inch blade, and so you can't, like, imagine, he throws, he thrusts the sword in, and then after he thrusts the sword in, you can't even see, like, the sword, because it's underneath him. And I don't know if he intentionally left it there. He's like, I, I don't want to go back in there and get that out. <laughs> I don't know. But, but obviously, this is uh, quite the story. Quite the story, and... The king is dead. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now this is going to create a logistical problem. Okay. It's going to create a logistical problem because he's gone in, he's in the throne room. He was already in the throne room with King Eglon. He just killed him. Obviously he's worried that someone might come in, goes, locks the door. But what's the problem if he locked the doors? He's locked in, right? Not a trick question. He's locked in. So how is he going to get out? This is a question. I want you to think about this. How is he going to get out? I know, we talked about this already. <laughs> Verse 24. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he, Eglon, our king, is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. This is a hot climate where they live. And this is a large man with a lot of stuff that came out of him. And it's going to smell real nasty. Okay? Real, real, real nasty in the heat of day. And, and they're starting to get embarrassed, but they're thinking, they're assuming he's just using the bathroom. And if I wasn't reading this, you, if someone walked in here, they'd be like, are we in church? <laughs> it's a crazy story. So they're embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. He passed beyond the idols. Oh, that's not good. And escaped to Sirah. The irony, the humor of the situation, it would not have escaped the Israelites. It has not escaped your attention here in 2018. It would not have escaped their attention. They would have been laughing hysterically over this story. They would have been happy. They would have been excited. But it raises the question, how did he get out? How did he get out if he's locked on the inside? And there's, there's different views on this, but I think one view, which I think is not just possible, but it's certainly plausible, knowing that he's locked from the inside, knowing that Eglon, who seems to have kind of all the lavish luxuries at his disposal built for him, including the fact that there's a toilet in his throne room, has led many commentators to believe that Ehud escaped through the toilet. That is, I, that is probably what, ex what and how he escaped, through the toilet. Which, if that's the case, you can say he is really all in and very committed to doing this very dirty job. <laughs> you, can, you understand now why I said this is such a, a cool story. 
And once again, it wouldn't have escaped the Israelites. Their reaction would have probably been much like yours, if not even stronger. And so here, Eglon, the little fat calf, the little monstrosity, the ruler of the mighty Moabites, is now reduced to nothing more than a corpse and a pile of poop. (laughs) Right? The narrator is making sure that he points out all these details. Good news. Good news. Verse 27. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. And he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. This is very strategic on their part. They have essentially cut off any possible means for the Moabites to retreat. They have cut off any possible means for the Moabites to reinforce the unit that was there on the ground. The fords, be it bridges, be it low water areas, low crossing areas on the Jordan. I mean, this is near the Moabite border. But now their retreat is cut off. There's no way that they're making it out alive. A very, very clever plan, very strategic. And they killed, verse 29, at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. All strong, able-bodied men. The narrator wants us to understand these 10,000 men are not like their king. All strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. God gives him another opportunity. God's going to give him another chance. Just as God gives us many opportunities. Just as God gives us many chances. And we step back and we evaluate the story. Ehud is clever. Ehud is brutal. And we certainly can find, I think, amusement by Ehud's wit, by his deception, uh, by his commitment. But he is treacherous. And you say, it's a time of war, and I understand that. Uh, But prior, I think, what is concerning, prior to verse 28, 28, 28, prior to this, there's no hint of any spiritual sensitivity on the part of Ehud. Prior to him, in verse 28, saying, Guys, I'm your leader. God's given the Moabites into our hands. Prior to this verse, there is no hint of any spiritual sensitivity in Ehud's heart. Nor any sense of the divine calling. The divine calling, back in 515, when the people cried out, and he raised up Ehud as their deliverer. Like, Does Ehud even know that God raised him up to be their deliverer? We don't know. But what we do know is Ehud, all throughout the story, as funny, as clever as it is, he operates like a typical Canaanite of his time. Opportunistic, violent, even seemingly out for his own glory, perhaps. But the narrator is not concerned about the morality about the the rightness or the wrongness of this story. The narrator, Samuel, we're not sure. He's simply just laying out the details for us. These are dark days. Dark days with some laughs scattered along the way, but they're very dark days. Ehud is God's appointed agent. 
God raises up Ehud to deliver the people. But at the end of the day, the credit goes entirely to God. The credit goes entirely to Yahweh. He is so gracious. His people so undeserving. As I said earlier, I would have left them there for another 18 years. He doesn't. He hears their cry. He shows them mercy. But once again, don't make any mistake in thinking that because God raised Ehud, that Ehud automatically loves God. I think people would say that, right? Well, he raised him up in verse 15 to be the deliverer, so he must love God. He also strengthened Eglon, the Moabite king, the pagan king, in verse 12. So that, that line of logic is going to fall apart. Like, it's possible, it's entirely possible that Ehud thinks that this is all happening because of his own ingenuity. Possible. His own cleverness, to say the least. But does Ehud love God? That's what I want to know, right? Does he love God? I don't know. Ehud honestly strikes me more as an opportunistic politician sort of type of guy who says what he has to say to get what he really wants. Like, he mentions God. He mentions in verse 28 that God's given them into their hands. But it really comes off, it just has this feel that it's a momentary hashtag rather than a heartfelt affection and love for God. Does he love God? I don't know. Is he devoted to God? I don't know. It reminds me kind of, as we said in chapter 315, where the people are crying out for God's help. Where the people, they want God's help, they just don't want Him. Where they want all the blessings, just without the obedience and the commitment. Is this Ehud? Maybe. Maybe. I think one thing is for certain. The silence. The silence of the, narr- the narrator. The silence of the narrator in speaking, or rather not saying anything about Ehud's devotion to God. He's just absent, which is kind of alarming because you would think that the narrator would say something if there was something positive to say in a story in which there's very few positive things to say. You would expect the narrator, if Ehud loved God, if he was really devoted to God, to say it. Hey, we don't have that many positive examples in the book of Judges. And the silence is deafening. Not to mention the references to the idols in verse 19 and verse 26. Narrator just mentions them matter-of-factly. Like, it's just business as usual. Yep, here are the idols here in verse 19. Yep, here are the idols in verse 26. It's just business as usual here in Israel. In which they look virtually no different than the world around them. It doesn't say anything else. No reference to the idols being destroyed, no reference to Ehud calling for their destruction, no reference for Ehud calling the people to repent. Just silence. It really seems like Ehud would would probably call him, uh, let me use air quotes, air quotes, a cultural Christian. Like I think he probably would fit in really well at some mega Christian university and they probably have a picture of Ehud with all his accolades and everything we talked about and laughed about and then some banner that says, We the Champions. (laughs) And like the narrator, my goal isn't to mock such an institution of higher learning. My goal in saying that is to point out how many people like Ehud there are. And those very people we celebrate, and I'm just not sure that we always should do that. 
because they mention Jesus one time in one line of a speech, and yet the rest of the time they look like, they talk like, they act like the rest of the world. But we think, we'll just, we'll just put a little hashtag on there, and we're good to go, right? Because they mentioned Jesus one time. And yet, truth be told, if we're really being honest, if we're really evaluating fairly, you wouldn't have any idea, apart from that one mention, that these people were truly devoted to God. At all. I'm not trying to be Johnny Raincloud here. It's a great thing that they've won. It's a great thing that they've defeated the Moabites. But wouldn't it have been a better story if in addition to killing the Moabites, they also killed sin? They also destroyed idols. They also obeyed God. They also repented from their sins. They also sought the forgiveness of God. Wouldn't that have made a better story? I think it would. And the world, no doubt, would look at this story and they judge Ehud entirely differently than I am today. I mean, it's an amazing story. And they probably would be far less critical, if any, at all. But then again, that's the nature and the problem for these people. They look and act more like the world than they otherwise should. That's how Israel got in this mess in the first place. The theme of the book of the Judges is the canonization of Israel, in which Israel is looking more like the world around them. They're supposed to be different. Church, we're supposed to be different. And many times, we're no different. Where people would say, oh, you're a Christian? I'd have no idea that you were a Christian. That's the, that's the nature, that's the theme absorbed through almost every page of this book. And unfortunately, the same problem for many people today who claim to follow God is that they hold on to him with one hand and they hold on to their idols that they've made for themselves and yet they haven't destroyed with the other hand. Remember the references? There they are, right? Wanting to have it both ways, right? I got Jesus in one hand and I got my idols that I just stubbornly refuse to let go of in the other hand. You know, maybe... Maybe Ehud does love God. Maybe I've just been entirely too hard on him. Maybe he really is devoted to God. But once again, you would think that the narrator would say something if that was the case. So few positive examples of what right looks like in this book. So maybe. Ehud is the story of a bunch of maybes. And yet it's also the story of God, who once again is the true hero, in which he shows he shows compassion toward his people, even though they didn't really want him, even though they didn't really want his forgiveness. The light has come into the world, but they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And yet, he just is going to be merciful to them anyways. God is the true hero in this story. I wonder what people would say about our story the story of the church. Would they wonder? Would they say, maybe they are Christians? Would it be obvious? Or is our story punctuated by the same ambiguity that this story is, with battles won, and idols left, and sin not really dealt with? That's Ehud's story. But my prayer is that that would not be our story. As the band comes, I want to pray for us.
God, I pray that we would have a different story, not a partial story. Our story would not be the story of maybe, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. God, I, I pray that I pray that you would help us as we stubbornly try to have it both ways, as we stubbornly refuse to not just let go of, but destroy the idolatry in our life where we cling to you with one hand, but we cling to these other things that we've made, even ideas that we've created with the other hand, that we'd let it go, that we'd be done with it, that we'd kill it. None of this partial obedience stuff. God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. 18 years, I would have left him another 18. And yet, God, you didn't. But while we were still sinners, you died for us. You're the real hero of this story. And I thank you that we have a hero like you. Amen.